Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have to say, I think there are headlines in political news today that are extraordinarily uh, dramatic, and I'm really looking forward to talking about them with the great panel we've assembled to do just that. It's Wednesday, which means my partner uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Greg Bluestein, who, not unusual to him these days, is joining us from his car somewhere in South Georgia. Greg, where are you, and what are you getting set to cover? I'm outside Mount Olive United Methodist Church, established in 1871, a dirt road near Dawson, <laughs> Georgia, in southeast, southwest Georgia, uh, going to see some uh, state officials talk about agricultural issues. Well, uh, we are always glad that you can take the time when you're on the road to join us for Political Rewind. So uh, thank you so much. Um, We're also joined today by Professor Andre Gillespie, who uh, you all know is Professor of Political Science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Andre, you political scientists like Chuck Bullock, who we'll introduce in a minute, are just getting more and more meaty things to dig into in this election cycle. There's always something interesting, so that's the the fun part of my job. Thanks for being here today, Charles Bullock. We're awfully glad to have you here as well. You know Chuck is the uh, professor of political science, a longtime professor of political science at the University of Georgia. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing real well. Good to be with you this morning. Yeah, thanks. And... We welcome back to Political Rewind, Rick Dent. Um, Rick, you've become a semi-regular on this show because no one, you, by the way, we should say you're vice president of Matrix Communications, which does government relations work, some political consulting. And, and what I started to say is you become kind of a semi-regular because I think you track the ads and the ad spending by candidates in races in Georgia with uh, more devotion than anyone else uh, that I know, at least. And so it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Yeah, look, I just want to formally apologize to everyone today for bringing down the average IQ of this panel so dramatically. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you really have to. I, wow. Rick, you don't have to worry. Rick, you don't have to worry about that. That's my job. Right. Wow. You know, I, wow. I, 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 I really think, Greg Bluestein, there's a lot of, lot of interesting news to uh, talk about in terms of Georgia campaigns right now. But, Greg, it does seem to me that um, there are a couple national stories we really should address right off the top. And the big one is probably the surprising vote in Kansas, the referendum that was designed to overturn a provision in the Kansas Supreme Court, which, uh, which w- allows for abortion up to 22 weeks of pregnancy, um, and, and Republicans and conservative anti-abortion people had hoped that they would be able to pass this referendum and uh, nullify that provision in the state constitution. Instead, an overwhelming percentage of people turned out to the polls and, and voted to keep that provision in the state constitution to keep abortion uh, a viable op- option in Kansas. It's a big story, uh, isn't it, uh, Greg? It's huge because, of course, Kansas is a reliably Republican state. It does have a history of voting for Democrats and statewide offices, but it's a very conservative uh, state and overwhelmingly voted for President Trump uh, in 2016 uh, and 2020. Um, and so we, we, this, to many people, was an indicator that um, the abortion issue, even though it's not at the top of the polls, the AJC poll and other polls, it is a uniquely motivating factor, and it could lead to a turnout surge that is hard to predict, and it's hard to keep a grasp of, 
And it happens, I don't think this was planned out, but it also happens to dovetail with a Stacey Abrams renewed push to focus attention on where Governor Kemp stands on the anti-abortion bill. She's out with a new ad today. She's having an event later on this, uh, this evening that focuses on, on the abortion law. And so, you know, just as much as all candidates are talking about the economy, um, uh, abortion remains front and center for Democrats as well. You know, Andre, it's probably worth pointing out that abortion, that, that uh, Kansas has a history of violence uh, in terms of the abortion issue. An abortion clinic was bombed there sometime, I think, in the 90s. Dr. George Tiller, who was one of the few doctors willing to perform late-term abortions, was shot by an anti-abortionist in 1993, shot and injured. And then in 2009, another anti-abortion advocate shot him and killed him. So it's a very volatile issue in the state, and yet voters rose up and said, no, no, protect the right. One of the questions that I think we've had since the Dobbs decision was whether or not we were going to start to see Democrats become single-issue abortion voters. So that's kind of been the big question and takeaway. Historically, if you were going to see single-issue abortion voters, they were pro-life voters who were voting for Republicans. But the Dobbs decision um, appears to be on a trajectory where it is galvanizing Democratic voters, first of all, and that, too, we're creating um, you know, what could look like a single-issue pro-abortion uh, voter. So this is kind of confirmation of that. We had seen it earlier. So, for instance, um, in, in data collected by the Public Religion Research Institute, and I will acknowledge them um, on the board of, of that institute, they've collected survey data in the immediate aftermath of Dobbs, and they saw a doubling, basically, in the number of, of, of Democrats who were claiming to be single-issue uh, abortion voters. And so I think that that's what you saw here in this vote. And you also saw this as being a galvanizing and mobilizing event. So on both sides of the issue in Kansas, we knew that there were pro and anti-abortion forces that were trying to get people to turn out to vote, uh, to explain uh, the language of the referendum because it was somewhat confusing. Um, and so here it looks like not only did Kansas voters uh, have uh, uh, pro-choice Kansas voters have sentiment on their side, they probably also had organization on their side as well. Hey, Chuck, let me add one layer to this and then get your thoughts. Um, uh, Kansas is also a heavily Catholic and evangelical, uh, evangelical state. The Archbishop of Kansas City has been a real, real fierce uh, advocate for the pro-life movement. He's become a hero to the conservatives in that state. And yet again, the measure uh, failed. Yeah, I think we would see the same kind of thing if this measure or something like it were to appear on the Georgia ballot, both in the surveys that were done for the AJC back in January and the one that was done in July, show that while, yeah, most Republicans are in favor of the six-week ban that now is in place in Georgia, in favor of overturning Roe, most Georgians are not. You know, right now, looking again at that survey from, uh, from UGA that we did, uh, about 55% of Georgians, 54 55%, oppose the six-week ban, oppose the overturning of Roe. And then one of the other things which came into this Kansas situation is that if you overturned that Constitution Amendment, how far might the legislature go? Might it ban all abortions? Mm -hmm. And again, there was a question on that in the survey done last month. Would you favor banning all abortions in Georgia? And that was rejected by more than 70 percent of Georgians. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Georgia would do the same kind of thing or Georgia voters would if given this kind of kind of option to vote yes or no on on where the abortion is going to be be available. So, Rick, uh, let me ask you to put this uh, as as Greg started to do in the political perspective here in Georgia. First, you know, to what extent does what happened in Canvas uh, say something about what we could see developing here in Georgia in terms of the uh, uh, pro-choice uh, uh, movement. Um, but but how do you think? Greg suggested that uh, uh, said that Stacey Abrams is about to move abortion back to uh, a, a top uh, line issue in her <laughs> campaign. Um, is abortion likely after Kansas? Are we beginning to see that maybe it could be uh, a, a single uh, issue uh, uh, motivation for some voters? Yeah. As I've said all along, Democrats better hope so, because November is going to be so hard for Democrats. 
And the abortion issue may be the only issue that can save Democrats in November. The question is, will it mobilize enough voters? And number two, will Democrats have the courage to use it as an issue like they need to? They can't wimp out on this. They either have to go all in or not. And even even if they do that, the political environment in November is so horrible for Democrats, it still may not, might not be enough. Rick, what does it mean to you that they go all in? They've got to run hard. This is not a soft issue. You've got to challenge Republicans. You've got to get in their faces. And you've got to say, are you going to make that 12-year-old victim carry that child all the way? And they have to make the argument that this Supreme Court decision is the beginning. It's not the end. That's not the end game. They're coming for you. They want more. And you've got to stand up to it. That's the argument I think you have to make. Greg? Yeah, to Rick's point, I talked to one Democratic candidate for a down-ticket office um, who suggested he would focus every single one of his mailers on this issue from, from here on out. Um, we saw Stacey Abrams' mm. ad just out this morning, um, 30 seconds, all featuring different women speaking directly to uh, camera, um, talking about those issues that, that Rick just uh, illuminated. Um, uh, talking about Brian Kemp's stance on abortion. And from the Republican perspective, Republican candidates want to speak about anything but this. They're not running away from their positions on anti-abortion restrictions, but they want to make this election about the economy, about Joe Biden, who has a 36% approval rating in the AJC poll. I was with Herschel Walker in Kennesaw last night. It was all about veterans affairs and military policies. Uh, I'll be with Governor Kemp um, tomorrow morning up in northeast Georgia. I'm sure he'll be talking about jobs, 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 the economy, the economy, the economy. And in his words, the Biden's, Biden-Abrams recession. Yeah, yeah the problem, the uh, situation I think is that uh, while people look at the ranking of issues and, yeah, the economy, cost of gasoline, inflation, that all comes off the very top of the issue. The abortion is several you know, items down. But what you're really playing for is a fairly small component of the electorate. I mean, an awful lot of people are locked in, Democrats or Republicans. And what probably is going to be critical this year, because it was critical in 2020 and 2021, what do the college-educated white suburban women do? This, I think, is an issue that's going to speak to them, that they think about maybe they had an abortion themselves 20, 25 years ago. What about their daughter who's going off to college? Yeah, I hope she's not having mm. sex, but she probably will. And what if she gets pregnant somehow? So I think in the ability to move that you know, one, two, three percentage points of the vote, it could easily be determinative in Georgia, which is very much of a toss-up state. That's where this issue comes in and why it is so important, not because it's the top issue, but because it could move the critical component of the electorate. So, Andra, please weigh in as you'd like to on this, but let me add another element, if I may, for, for you to think about uh, or to talk about. Um, could this Kansas vote be a brushback for Republicans who uh, want, in Georgia, who want to uh, uh, go even further in perhaps outlawing abortion in Georgia or removing uh, uh, rape, incest, or the life of the mother from the uh, so-called heartbeat ban. Is, is this a caution to them that they'd better be careful about going further? You know, it, it, it varies depending on which state you're in. Um, and so I'll think about sort of how this this, this relates to, to the state of Georgia. But broadly speaking, Kansas was in this position because it had constitutional provisions that could be read as protecting abortion rights. So um, states that do have privacy provisions, right, like this is an issue that comes up about whether or not you actually want to revise your uh, state constitutions. And so that may actually give pause to uh, to, to places that actually do have these, these provisions in their constitution. On the other hand, there are places that don't have these constitutional provisions that had uh, triggered laws or still had their old abortion laws on the books that have been preempted by Roe versus Wade. 
And I, you know, I doubt that we're going to see any change, um, any type of reflection about maybe this is not the right type of law. And I certainly wouldn't think that it would be easy to pass legislation that might actually amend the very strict abortion language that was already on the books in, in, in those particular states. So in Georgia, uh, you know, there may be some caution about staying um, at, at, at six weeks. There already seems to be some momentum and an appetite to stay there already. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, particularly, you know, depending on what the outcome of the election is, if, if David Ralston, you know, remains the speaker, right, you know, I could see him figuring out a way to uh, to basically keep it at the status quo right now. But I think he would have done that regardless of what happened in Kansas. You know, Andra, when the Supreme Court gave it, made its row it, uh, ruling, uh, uh, obviously there was a lot of analysis of the fact that the uh, uh, pro, so-called pro-life uh, people had worked for long, long periods of time to finally get this outcome. Uh, in Kansas, it's interesting that um, although it was a much shorter period of time, it, the, the, um, uh, the constitutional provision that allows for abortion in Kansas was just certified by the state Supreme Court. I think it was in 2019, and it was a ruling that really upset uh, those pro-life folks in Kansas. So you could make the argument that they, too, over a much shorter time period, but nevertheless, they started right then to do everything they could to get to this point where they would have a vote on on uh, uh, canceling out this amendment, and they lost. Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, the timing of this election is important. So they figured that by doing it during a primary election, you'd have a a smaller electorate, Mm -hmm. one that they could more easily mobilize to their advantage. That didn't work out. Um, because I think they underestimated the extent to which the usual sort of Democrats not being particularly vigilant on this particular issue uh, would change, how that dynamic would change in the face of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Um, And I I think also, and just thinking about the national discussion around this, even for people who are pro-life, there are things about the sort of implementation of the post-Roe world that sort of evidence a certain one lack of compassion, but then also sometimes a lack of forethought about what all of the externalities and implications of overturning Roe versus Wade are. And I think that people have reacted very negatively to that. The fact that you didn't think about how this affected other types of reproductive health, uh, you know, that this could implicate somebody having a miscarriage, uh, that this could implicate in vitro fertilization um, and, uh, and other types of fertility treatments. Um, and so this is an opportunity for reflection. I'm not necessarily hopeful that people are going to take this as an opportunity for reflection. That's not asking people to change what their values are about life, uh, but is asking for people to sort of not think about this in terms of a zero-sum game and just about having to win the argument or own the other side. Okay. Um, thank you, uh, all of you, for that conversation. Um, a little later in the show, I want to talk about uh, another big national story, I think, and that was the results of uh, GOP primary races in a couple of key states last night um, where Trump made endorsements and won. Uh, but but let's do that a little later in the show and turn f- to uh, state issues right now. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um Rick Dent has uh, been uh, telling all of us that uh, that he believes that Brian Kemp's uh, attacks on Stacey Abrams over this issue of defunding the police, a comment she made when pressed by an uh, anchor on CNN that she probably now wishes she hadn't made the, quite the way she did, seems to, in fact, be a... Uh, 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 pretty effective at this point. And in fact, the Abrams people are trying to push back against it. I'll tell you what I'd like to do, uh, uh, Greg, and then get you and everybody else to comment on it. Let's listen to a Kemp, the audio of a Kemp TV commercial on this subject, and then we'll start talking. Do we have it, uh, Chase? We don't have it? Okay. So, Greg, without the audio, we know the point. It's that he mm-hmm. they are pounding away at the fact that Stacey Abrams on CNN said, yes, let's defund the police. And several of the ads, variations of the ads, show that CNN clip, you know, where she's asked if, she, if that means shifting resources away from the police. And there's this kind of pregnant pause. There's this pause for maybe two seconds. 
and where, where Stacey Abrams um, then answers yes, you know, uh, and it, it doesn't include the elaboration after that where she talks a little bit more about her stance on the issue. Um, but it's been a devastating ad uh, because it plays into an a, 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 a issue that really energizes Republican voters, which is this notion that Democrats want to defund the police. Um, she has been very, very clear you know, throughout this entire campaign that Stacey Abrams has, that she does not want to defund the police, that she actually wants to raise um, the salaries of certain law enforcement officials, that she came out with a multi-page policy that outlines all of her public safety proposals. But just like we saw in 2020 with David Perdue condemning John Ossoff over his um, law enforcement stances, uh, we're seeing that even more so in 2022 with Stacey Abrams. And this time they have this clip, they have this CNN clip, they can just pound her over the head with, and she's now uh, taped several ads uh, in, in trying to respond to that. That that underscores how damaging this could be for her. Yeah, uh, Rick, uh, uh, the Abrams campaign released an ad with several law enforcement uh, 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 officers uh, saying uh, that it's nonsense that, of course, Stacey Abrams supports the police. Uh, and one of the ads talks about the fact that she worked to make sure uh, when she was a legislator that uh, lawmaker, uh, that uh, officers had the tools they needed, the money they needed. Um, but you believe, I think, Rick, that these are damaging to her and her campaign hasn't responded quite as quickly as it needed to. Yeah, uh, there are a couple of thoughts. Number one, the Republicans have been attacking on this issue since June 22nd. So we're talking, what, five to six weeks. That tells you they think it's working, number one. Number two, Stacey Abrams is now on her second response ad, not first, and six weeks later, by the way. And if you look at the difference between her two responses, the first one about two weeks ago was, Brian Kemp is trying to scare you. The new one is, Brian Kemp's a liar. A huge difference in tone. That tells me it's working, and if you're explaining, you're losing, and it's been six weeks, and that's a problem for her, I think. And and, and, and if there were to be a third message in this, it would be, and Brian Kemp is racist for bringing this up. That's what she doesn't want to say. Um, and for those in my space who study deracialized campaign tactics, like this is evidence number one that Stacey Abrams is, is running as racially a transcendent campaign as one can run in a highly racially charged moment, that she's reluctant to actually go there. Like it's hitting because it is tapping into stereotypes about black leadership and about how if you let blacks be in charge, everything is going to go haywire and it's going to run amok. Right. It's the reason why Doug Wilder, when he ran for governor, ran as a pro-death penalty, pro-law and order candidate to try to blunt that criticism. It is how Tom Bradley, a former police officer, got branded mm. as being, you know, um, as being somebody who was going to be soft on crime. And so uh, she doesn't want to go there in terms of saying how punitive she would be, but she wants to show how supportive she would be of police. And it's in a moment when there are. Uh, Democrats and there are activists, and it's more activists than there are Democrats who do say things like defund the police, which no mainstream Democrat, including black Democrats, support. So to say that she might be Cori Bush or Ilhan Omar is just like, it's not true. It's not accurate, but you can paint everybody with a brush because you found a few black women who could say that. Um, and it's not abolition, right? So, you know, I, you know, work in a space where there are activists and academics who are, you know, bona fide police abolitionists. They want to start, like, tear the whole thing down and start over again. And that start over again, I think, often gets lost in the discussion. Stacey Abrams isn't one of those folks. She is trying to work within the system, but it doesn't matter. People heard one black person say, it, you're going to invoke the language of Nixon in the night from the late 60s and early 70s and get away with it. And, and, and so other people are just going to have to point this out for being what it is, which was taking her nuanced comment on CNN and taking it out of context and tapping into people's existing stereotypes about, about what they think about black people broadly and about black people who aspire to leadership in particular. Chuck? Chuck? Yeah, this becomes uh, so effective an ad from the Republican standpoint because it ties in with other things that people are seeing. So every night on the Atlanta news, you know, there's been another shooting, another murder somewhere. Oh, gee, well, people are out there doing bad things. 
But what are Democrats doing about it? Well, so there's this ad that says that they defund the police, and then there are other stories out there that talk about how local, uh, particularly in cities, uh, they, they're going with no bail. So that's letting those criminals right back out. What are they doing? They're going and killing folks. So uh, these ads that Republicans are running fit very well within the context of what many people are observing, you know, and just as they read the newspaper or look at the news in the evening. So, uh, uh, Greg, to what extent have you talked to the Abrams campaign about these commercials that are attacking her on this? And how how concerned are they that they're having an impact? Or if you haven't talked to them about it, what's your take as you've talked to voters, given your travels around the state? Oh, yeah, I've definitely talked to the Abrams campaign and voters about that. And, you know, they, they, they gave me that ad first off of the morning jolt newsletter a couple, couple days ago. All the days are starting to blur into each other. But, you know, look, that's a sign that they're concerned. You know, if you've got to run um, a second ad in almost as many weeks and within, within about two weeks about this issue, then, yeah, it's clearly something that they need to they're trying to reframe the narrative over. And this second ad focuses on three basically law enforcement officials, a retired um, uh, deputy sheriff from Florida, a lieutenant uh, in Georgia and uh, a district attorney from Douglas County who supports Abrams' campaign. Um, and so in, in this, rather than speaking direct to camera, she is relying on these surrogates to speak direct to camera. Um, but it's something that we're not going to hear Governor Kemp relent on, even, even, even as he shifts to other uh, issues, too. It's something that continues to resonate, and I guarantee you he'll bring it up on the campaign trail when he's hitting all these stops in northeast Georgia tomorrow. Rick, um, before we get to a break, um if there was any such thing as nuance <laughs> in this uh, debate, uh, you might want to point out, it's interesting that when the legislature, led by David Ralston himself, uh, passed this, this sweeping mental health reform bill, one of the elements of it that they were concerned about and that Ralston talked about was that his police uh, officers, his law enforcement folks up in Blue Ridge, uh, had been telling him that they handle so many cases where people are struggling with mental health issues and therefore get into situations of uh, jeopardy of one part and another, and that it was time to start looking at how you could share the responsibilities beyond the law enforcement community. Well, in fact, that's really what a lot of the effort uh, is around law enforcement to change who handles what. You know, maybe you better have a social worker instead of a cop show up at a domestic dispute. But that's the nuanced uh, approach, which has nothing to do with political campaigns. <laughs> exactly. And listen to what you just said. If you are explaining, you are losing. If I say right. she wants to defund the police and she gives your answer, I win that argument. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I got a million dollars in 30 seconds. Nuance does not work in a 30-second ad. And that's primarily what voters are going to see. And, and look, All one right, other let's thing. let's do this. Sure. One other thing. Um, Democrats need to understand that, and I'm not talking policy, I'm talking politics. Republicans have defined, defend, uh, defund the police in such a toxic manner we can no longer win on this issue. Well, and then let's go back just real quickly because we got to get to a break. But Andra, I think this brings into play your concerns about this as a racial issue. Well, I mean, so, I mean, there was a debate sort of within Black Lives Matter, and I've been on the record since, like, the term came out that that was a really stupid phrase. It should have gone up for message testing so that people understood exactly uh, what it was. Um, but it was, uh, you know, uh, somebody proposed to me at one time for a city of Decatur event, divest and invest, right? But that still doesn't sound as sexy as defund the police. So, uh, right, that, that, that was a strategic <laughs> blunder and an unforced error that has paid, unfortunately, back in dividends um, uh, for, uh, for, for Democrats. But there has to be a way to say, and I wish you could come up with three words for it, a way to talk about reforming the police that doesn't necessarily sort of like, you know, in, 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 invoke this idea of complete anarchy. And unfortunately, that's what deep on the police sounds like to a lot of people. All right. Um, we got to get to a break. We're a little late for that. So let's do it right now. We'll come back. We've still got a lot more to talk about with this terrific panel.
quick program note before we get back to the panel. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be talking to Mark Leibovich, former uh, New York Times Magazine uh, writer now with The Atlantic. He's got a brand new book out called Thank You for Your Servitude. Uh, If you don't know Mark Leibovich's work, you do not want to miss this show. No one looks at politics with quite the jaundiced eye that he does. And in this book, he takes us all the way through the Trump uh, rise to power and all of the crazy characters that surrounded Trump during it. It's really a fascinating and fun book. And so join us for Mark Leibovich on Political Rewind tomorrow. All right. Um, We've got Greg Bluestein, We've got Chuck Bullock, Andre Gillespie, and Rick Nett with us uh, today. Hey, Chuck Bullock, let me ask you this to start things off here. The, um, The as we talk about how the commercials are playing out in these campaigns, I think the Warnock campaign is up to their fourth spot uh, attacking uh, Walker over the lies that he says he's been telling about himself, about his business uh, and other aspects of his life. And and I'm wondering, um, they, they're good spots. I mean, they're very, they strike me as being very effective. You may want Walker to win the Senate race, but these ads seem to be effective. How do you think they're playing out there? Yeah, I think they're probably playing pretty well. And that the theme of each of these ads is Herschel Walker versus the truth. And I think it's effective the way they do it. Rick may disagree on this, but they have Walker himself speaking. So it's not someone reporting what Walker said. Here Walker is saying it. And then there is a person who uh, kind of comes in as, as a media person and says, well, what he says is not, not the truth. Uh, so. Yeah, I was speaking to a Rotary Club last week, and you know, Rotary Clubs tend to be more Republican than Democratic. And I could tell there was kind of a shift in the tone in the room when I got to Herschel Walker. So, yeah, I think it is having an effect. And these ads are coming out fairly early in the campaign rather than waiting until October. My guess is the reason for this is that the Democrats are still trying to define Walker. Sure, if you're, you know, 50 years old or older, yeah, you know who Herschel Walker is, and you cheered him on if you were living here in Georgia. But we've got a generation and a half who wasn't here when Herschel Walker was playing football. We've got millions of people who moved to Georgia who weren't here when Herschel Walker was playing football. So I think there is still a chance to define Herschel Walker in a political space where you know, he, you know, we know who he is in an athletic space, but he's being defined in this political space. And this question about is Herschel Walker trustworthy? Is he ready to represent George? Would you feel comfortable if he is your senator, given this information you're being given now about his problems with the truth? I think this is a very effective approach. You know, Rick, it's kind of, I I suppose you could say, a clever response from the Walker campaign that there's now a spot that, in fact, uh, takes advantage of his uh, star football player days. It shows him uh, running through defenders, knocking them over. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. And says, and he says to 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 us, I'm used to taking the hits. I can take them and keep on uh, going. What what kind of response do you make? Is that do you think? Uh, look, it it goes back to his playing days, which everybody remembers. Uh, it reminds voters that he's tough and can take on anything. Um, but the thing that would concern me the most. If I'm the Warnock campaign, look, I've done plenty of incumbent campaigns. You have two opponents when you're an incumbent. You have your opponent from the other party, and you have 50%. And when we were doing incumbent campaigns, I didn't care where my opponent was. I looked at where am I compared to 50%. And with... Mm -hmm. All of the negatives that have been aimed at Herschel Walker's head, with all of the awful AJC articles aimed at Herschel Walker's head, the the fact that he's still this close and Warnock is below 50 makes me a little nervous. 
Yeah, Greg, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, uh, Herschel Walker's within striking distance. Um, he's he's right there in the mix. Uh, if you're Raphael Warnock, who's outspent him, um, who has um, you know uh, more resources than Herschel Walker, you know that this race is far from over because uh, you also have the national climate, you know, that's working against Democrats and, and is making him one of the most vulnerable Democratic incumbents. But this ad strategy of this is really interesting um, because. We can see it, it, it is just what we expect to be a first phase, right? I mean, we know we know some of the issues that we've reported on, that we've talked about on the show, still haven't surfaced in these ad campaigns. And the issues of violence against women and, and violent threats and maybe even mental illness. And so um, what we're seeing right now is, um, you know, an effort to undermine his credibility, to attack um, his viability as a candidate, and to show that he's not prepared to take this office, what we might see next is attacks that kind of build on that credibility issue and say, okay, now you know that he's had a history of erratic and, and, and unpredictable behavior and making falsehoods and lies. Well, now we're telling you this. And so that's what I'm waiting for is to see um, if those attacks come and how effective they will be if they do come. Andra? You know, I, I think that the Warnock campaign was prepared to not get to that elusive 50 percent, right? They realize that they're in a state where, you know, Democrats and Republicans are roughly equal, that Democrats might still be slightly behind um, in terms of, of party identification. And so I think they knew that the race was close and that Herschel Walker was going to get at least 45 percent of the vote just because he was wearing a red jersey. Um, and so I, I think that what they're doing now is responding to the fact that this is going to be a close race and it's always going to be within the margin of error more than likely if we're looking at likely voters. So, um, you know, by calling his character into question, I think one of the next things that you'd likely see people trying to do is to call his uh uh, intelligence um, into question and, 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 and not in, uh, you know, a racist way or a way that sort of panders to sort of our stereotypes about athletes, but to just talk about his general lack of preparation. And that's part of the reason to try to go to him into a debate. But that's also, I mean, you don't have to, even if he chooses not to debate, he's given nonsensical answers uh, to friendly media outlets on issues that certainly evidence a certain lack of preparedness. Uh, for the job that Walker can provide a really sort of healthy contrast where you can talk about issues and talk about a record of achievement that might make some of those swing voters, those suburban voters uh, that are going to be crucial to either side winning um, to make them more comfortable with having him as a representative, uh, Walker, um, Warnock as a representative, as opposed to having, you know, somebody who might make you feel good because it reminds you of 1982. Um Greg, am I right that we now have word from the Walker campaign that he said he'll debate Warnock in, in Savannah? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that came last night in an appearance in Fox News. And I don't like writing stories about debates over debates as much as people, you know, as much as folks like to read them sometimes. But th that's why this is important, <laughs> um, because, you know, with a race this close and with all that history of baggage um, that, that, that Herschel Walker has, and all these blunders on the campaign trail and nonsensical statements, you know, that, that even his own most ardent supporters will, will say, yeah, he messed that answer up and he did a disastrous blunder there. That's why this debate is more important than most. And that's why his decision um, so far up until last night not to commit to a debate is also important because among, you know, among that swing voter set that Professor Bullock was talking about, um, you know, that narrow band of voters who hasn't decided, or, or those Republicans that are still very skeptical about Herschel Walker, this debate could be a very important moment for them um, to, to, to make up their minds. And there's such low expectations for Herschel Walker. He can play into that. Now, he, he did commit to an October 14th debate um, last night in, in Savannah, but I, I'll note that, her, that Raphael Warnock has already committed to three debates, including one in Savannah, and the debate that Herschel Walker accepted is not the same debate as as, as um, and Raphael Warnock has already accepted. So it's still confusing. And my, my hunch is there still won't be a debate. But at least now he can say, hey, I, I put one on the table and, and we'll see where this goes. Of course, Rick Dent, you and I happen to agree completely that the format of debates, at least in this state, 
where that are so highly structured where you know a candidate gets one minute to answer a question that ought to give him five minutes to talk about in terms of his policy are virtually worthless except for those moments where somebody really makes a terrible mistake and right. uh, gets time on the news, you know, to look stupid. <laughs> I, look, when, when I was in campaigns, I, I hated debate because it took so much time, number one, to prepare. Number two, just like you said, it was about got you and screwing up. You really couldn't win. Uh, most people don't watch debates. And, and look, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out with Herschel Walker. I got to tell you, if I'm Herschel Walker, I wouldn't debate. And we're seeing other candidates in other states, well, actually in Georgia too, decide I'm not going to debate and it hasn't hurt them. I think if I'm Herschel Walker, I'd say, look, folks, I'm not a professional politician, which is why I'm running. And you know what? Sometimes I mangle my words. But you know what? I am right on all the issues, and I'm not going to get on a debate stage with that liar. That's what I would uh, say. Chuck, i got to get to a break, but I'd love your quick take on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Rick makes a very good very good case here. Um, but also, we look back and we can see candidates who have lost elections. I'm thinking of a challenger to John Barrow a few years back who refused to debate, and uh, the voters, at least in that district, took it very negatively that he would not get on the same stage. And this was, again, a person who probably felt that he was very much overmatched intellectually by going up against John. So I think there may be a downside to also kind of refusing to to show up for any kind of debate and presentation. Andre, a quick comment before the break? I mean, I think that, that, like, most people aren't going to be persuaded, but there is a group of persuadable people who will turn in. And in particular, because there is a narrative about Walker as being potentially not up for the job intellectually, he's going to have to prove it somewhere. Um, and so a debate would be a place to do that or a very well-placed interview where he doesn't mess up or have a Sarah Palin moment. Um, and I think that the, the running fear is that the reason why he's not doing it is because he's incapable of actually being able to have a moment of lucidity that could appeal to voters. Okay, got to get to a break. Uh, more when we come back on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We had more primary elections last night, and uh, uh, Donald Trump had some pretty significant victories in both Arizona and Michigan. Uh, For instance, in Arizona, one of the candidates who we endorsed to won, Mark Fincham, uh, for Secretary of State, is a guy who's been an election denier uh, ever since the election uh, in 2020. And now he's primed to possibly become Secretary of State and oversee the elections in Arizona. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Trump's choice for Senate. Uh, Blake Masters also uh, won. He's a right-wing election denier, and uh, he'll go up against Mark Kelly. But the race I'd love to talk about with the panel, Greg, is in Michigan, where um, you had uh, one of the Republican incumbents, Peter Meyer, who actually voted to uh, impeach Donald Trump and has been a target ever since on Trump's radar. And uh, Meyer's lost to John Gibbs, a real right-wing conspiracy theorist. He he's he believes the election in 2020 was fraudulent. At one point in his career, Greg, he said that John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, practiced satanic rituals. He won this race. But here's why I want to talk about it. It wasn't just Trump's endorsement. It was DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee money, that went into that race uh, highlighting all of the extreme views of Gibbs 
in an effort to get Republican voters to elect him so that they'd have a weaker candidate in the, dem- in the, run- in the general election with their Democrat. What a cynical, and they're doing it in other states. It's a yeah. very cynical strategy. It's a cynical strategy. It's a risky strategy. And what does it say about, uh, you know, about enticing uh, moderate Republicans to go cross party lines and support Democratic policies in the future? Right. If, if they can be punished like this. But we're seeing it happen in the uh, we saw it happen in Pennsylvania. We saw it happen in Illinois. Um, we've seen it happen in other um, states uh, where Democrats feel like plowing and we're not just talking about a small you know, digital ad here and there. We're talking about millions of dollars worth of spending in, in these contests. Um, and, you know, in some of these ways, I mean, who knows? Uh, there could be backfires that, that Democrats could regret their actions. But in general, um, it sends a message uh, to moderate Republicans or to even conservative Republicans who are willing to vote with Democrats. Hey, you know, <laughs> this could happen to you if you stand up against Democrats could also be uh, attacking you for your stand against election fraud, uh, the, the election deniers. Rick, Open Secrets reports that Democrats have spent more than $44 million uh, supporting uh, extreme Republicans uh, in hopes that they'll win their primary and Democrats will beat them in the general. I, I think this is a proof point that there is way too much money in politics. Because if you're willing to spend $44 million to do this type of double-knot spy ricochet strategy, there's way too much money in politics, period. Andre? Um, you know, I, I'm going to echo Greg a little bit and say be careful what you wish for, DCCC. You just might get it. Um, I'm concerned about this just from a democracy standpoint and from a normative standpoint. You know, it's one thing when an individual citizen decides to go vote for the other party in an open primary. Um, But it's something entirely different when you have the national party apparatus interfering in elections on the other side. It's in everybody's interest to have a strong and healthy Democratic and Republican Party and to go after um, Republican candidates, because the ones they're going after are the moderates, the reasonable people, the ones you can work with, yeah. right, for gamesmanship, just so that you can pick up seats to shore up losses that you're going to have in other places, um, is destabilizing to democracy. It's not as destabilizing as January 6th, but I think this is also something that's really, really problematic. Um, and uh, Peter Meyer is somebody who you don't have to agree with all the time, but you can have a lot of respect for how he carries himself as a member of Congress. And so this is a shame. Like, this is this is not what you should be doing. And so especially in a state like Georgia, where, you know, there are lots of incentives for individual people to sort of play this role in voting in, in, in the Republican primary, right, because that's the main election. I think sometimes you also have to uh, uh, sort of take the strategy of what happens if this extremist that you just got nominated actually ends up winning the seat. Um, and so that, that, should, that, that should give the National Party um, some, some caution in terms of, of doing this. And you also need to think about reciprocity, right? So if the tables were turned, you have now pretty much given license for the NRCC to do the same thing to you and you wouldn't like it. So there are just all kinds of reasons why this is problematic. <laughs> Chuck? Yeah, I think it's almost certain that at least some of these extreme candidates of Democratic Democratic money has gone behind are going to win in November. Uh, so, yeah, you are going to have this, uh, this unfavorable result, as well as then the message that it sends to any kind of Republican that you're approaching on any kind of issue, both in the House and the Senate, saying, gee, we desperately need your vote. Why don't you come join with us and help us on this? This is very much opposite of what we saw with some presidents, and Richard Nixon, I know, did this and some of the others who actually told members of the other party, if you will support me on a particular issue, then I will not campaign against you when you run for re-election. So this is just the opposite of that, trying to build a broader base for the good of the country. And just a quick note, we could have potentially seen this in Georgia. We could have potentially seen um, Democratic spending to prop up Jody Heiss, who was an election denier, exactly. who, who said he wouldn't have, uh, have uh, uh, confirmed uh, Joe Biden's victory in Georgia. We didn't, right? And so, um, in part because Jody has, you know, would have had a real good shot at winning, um, just like Brad Raffensperger does, but also in part because Democrats made that strategic decision here not to go that route. So it's important to note that um, while that's happening in other parts of the country, it did not happen in Georgia. 
That's really, really well said, I think. I thought the same thing about Jody Heiss, Greg. Um, uh, Rick, uh, two people who really have reason to be furious about this Democratic strategy are Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. Here are two Republicans who had the courage to stand up and not just um, not just criticize Donald Trump, but be, become members of the January 6th committee, which is working to show the country how dangerous the extreme right-wing Republican Trump advocates are, and Democrats are trying to prop up those people. If I were Cheney and Kinzinger, I'd be furious about this. Um, it, it really is inexplicable, as the panel has pointed out, for all the different reasons. But it also backs up that old political adage, if you're not willing to screw your friends, you shouldn't be in politics. And I, <laughs> and, uh, I, I think this falls right into that category. It makes no sense politically for all the reasons everyone has outlined, but it is what it is. Uh, Rick, Rick Dent, that line gives me the chance to once again promote as we come to the end of today's show tomorrow, because that's the sort of thing I'd expect would, that Mark Leibovich would say in talking about politics. Again, uh, tomorrow on the show, Mark Leibovich, now a writer for The Atlantic, talking about his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, which he centers on the Trump Hotel and all of the hangers-on and enablers who over the years he watched congregating there as they advanced all of the loony theories about uh, politics and Trump. Um in the meantime, thank you so much, Andre Gillespie and Chuck Bullock, Greg Bluestein, and Rick Dent. Uh, what a great, great conversation. This is another day I'm so glad I get a chance to talk with uh, terrific panelists like you. Um, we'll be back again tomorrow. My thanks to Chase uh, McGee, to Victoria Evans for uh, her work on the show. Uh, for Jake Cook, for Natalie Mendenhall. We're back again tomorrow with a brand new edition of Political Rewind. Take care. Stay healthy.